0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, today we are on Chapter 38 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Freemasonry and the Gnostics. Far from rare, Hypothesis seeks to trace a connection between Gnosticism and Freemasonry, and perhaps even an origin of the latter from the former. This has been repeatedly advanced and is therefore worthy of some examination. One of these instances is in a work of C.W. King, published in 1864, under the title of The Gnostics and Their Remains, Ancient and Medieval. Mr. King is not a Freemason, like all the non-Masonic writers such as Berule, Robeson, De Kinsey, and a host of others, who have attempted to discuss the history and character of Freemasonry, he has shown much misunderstanding of the subject. In fact, these self-appointed critics, when treating of subjects in which they are not and cannot be familiar, remind one of the busybodies of Plautus, of whom the latter has said that while pretending to know everything, they know nothing. Qui omnia se simulant skise nec quiquam quam very justly has brother W. J. Hugan called this work of King's, so far as its Masonic theories are concerned, one of an un Masonic and unhistoric character. But King, it must be admitted, was not the first writer who sought to trace Freemasonry to a Gnostic origin. A pamphlet was published in 1725, a copy of which has been preserved in the Bodleian Library, Oxford, England, among the manuscripts of Doctor Rawlinson, and which bears the title of Two Letters to a Friend the first concerning the Society of Freemasons, the second giving an account of the most ancient order of Gormagons, etc. We find in the first letter, Treating of the Freemasons, the following passage, But now, sir, to draw toward a conclusion, and to give my opinion seriously concerning those prodigious virtuosi, my belief is that if they fall under any denomination at all, or belong to any sect of men, which has hitherto appeared in the world, they may be ranked among the Gnostics, who took their original from Simon Magus. These were a set of men, which ridiculed not only Christianity, but even rational morality, teaching that they should be saved by their capacious knowledge and understanding of no mortal man could tell what. They babbled of an amazing intelligence they had from nobody knows whence. They amused and puzzled their hair-brained, unwary crowd with superstitious interpretations of extravagant, talismanic characters and abstruse significations of uncommon, cabalistic words, which exactly agrees with the proceedings of our modern Freemasons. We must confess that the true value of this pamphlet was not such as to have preserved it from the literary tomb which would have hidden it, had not the zeal of a collector of such curios preserved a single copy as a relic, Yet the notion of some relationship of Freemasonry to Gnosticism was not in later years altogether cast aside and forgotten. Hutchinson says that under our present profession of Masonry, we allege our morality was originally deduced from the school of Pythagoras, and that the Basilidean system of religion furnished us with some tenets, principles, and hieroglyphics. Basilides, the founder of the sect which bears his name, was the most eminent of the Eastern Gnostics. About the time of the making, or perhaps it was only amending, of the high degrees on the continent of Europe, a variety of opinions of the origin of Freemasonry, many of them absurd, sprang up among Masonic students. Among these theorists, there were not a few who traced the order to the early Christians, because they found it, as they supposed, among the Gnostics, and especially its most important sect, the Basilideans. Several of the German and French writers have also suggested somewhat plainly the hypothesis of a connection, more or less intimate, between the Gnostics and the Freemasons. We do not know that any German writer has positively asserted the existence of this connection, but the doctrine has, at times, been alluded to without any definite or strong denial of a belief in its truth. Thus, Carl Michaelier the author of a treatise on the Phoenician Mysteries, has written some observations on the subject in an article published by him late in the 18th century in the Vienna Journal für Freimaurer, on the analogy between the Christianity of the early times and Freemasonry. In this essay, he refers to the theory of the Gnostic origin of Freemasonry. He is, however, very guarded in his conclusions and says conditionally that if there is any connection between the two, it must be traced to the Gnosticism of Clement of Alexandria, and on which simply as a school of philosophy and history it may have been founded, while the differences between the two now existing must be credited to changes of human conception in the centuries that have since gone by. But in fact, the Gnosticism of Clement was something entirely different from that of Basilides, to whom Hutchinson and King say is due the origin of our symbols, and whom Clement vigorously opposed in his works. It was what he himself calls it a true Gnosis or Christian philosophy on the basis of faith. It was that higher knowledge or more perfect state of Christian faith to which St. Paul is supposed to refer when he says in his first epistle to the Corinthians that he made known to those who were perfect a higher wisdom. Rigolini speaks more positively. He says that the symbols and doctrines of the Ophites, who were a Gnostic sect, passed over into Europe, having been adapted by the Crusaders, the Rosicrucians, and the Templars, and finally reached the Freemasons. Lastly, we may refer to the Leland Manuscript, the author of which distinctly brought this doctrine to the public view by asserting that the Freemasons were acquainted with the faculty of Abrac, by which phrase he refers to the most prominent and distinctive of the Gnostic symbols. That the writer of this very curious document should thus have intimated the existence of a connection between Gnosticism and Freemasonry would lead us to infer that the idea of such a connection was not wholly unfamiliar to the Masonic mind at that period. Such an inference will be strengthened by the passage already quoted from the pamphlet in the Rawlinson Collection, a treatise which was published about a quarter of a century before. But before we can enter into a proper discussion of this important question, it will be wise, for the sake of the general reader, that something should be said of the Gnostics and of the philosophical and religious system which they professed. We propose, therefore, very briefly, to reply to the questions, What is Gnosticism, and who are the Gnostics? Scarcely had the light of Christianity dawned upon the world before a host of heresies sprang up to disturb the new religion. Among them, Gnosticism held the most important position. The title of the sect is derived from the Greek word gnosis, which means wisdom or knowledge. This name was adopted in a spirit of pride to intimate that the disciples of the sect were in possession of a higher degree of spiritual wisdom than was to be breached by those who had not been initiated into their mysteries. At so early a period did the heresy of Gnosticism arise in the Christian church that we find the Apostle Paul warning the converts to the new faith of such blemishes on the pure doctrine of Christ. He tells his disciple Timothy to avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. The translators of the authorized version have so rendered the passage. But in view of the greater light that has since their day been thrown upon the religious history and spirit of the period of the apostles, and the real nature of the Gnostic element which disturbed it, Brother Mackey was of the opinion that we may better preserve the true sense of the original Greek by translating the words as oppositions of the false Gnosis. There were then two kinds of Gnosis, or Gnosticism, the true and the false. This is a distinction which St. Paul himself makes in a passage in his epistle to the Corinthians, in which he speaks of the wisdom which he taught, and gave to the perfect as opposed to the wisdom of the world. Clement declared himself to be a follower of this true Gnosticism. With it and Freemasonry, there can be no connection, except that slender one admitted by Michaelier, and relating only to the search and study of philosophical and historical truth. The false gnosis to which the apostle refers is the subject of our present inquiry. When John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, and for some time before, there were many old philosophical and religious systems which, coming from the East, had the mystical character peculiar to the Oriental mind. These various systems were then, because of the better communication between different nations following the conquests of Alexander of Macedon, beginning to borrow from each other. The disciples of Plato were taking some of the doctrines of the Eastern Magi. These, in turn, were becoming more or less influenced with the philosophy of Greece. Traditions of India, Persia, Egypt, Chaldea, Judea, Greece, and Rome were mingling in one mass and forming out of the mixture a mystical philosophy and religion which partook of the elements out of which it was composed, and yet contained within its bosom a mysticism peculiar to itself. This new system was Gnosticism. This took its leading doctrines from Plato— from the Zendavesta, the Kabbalah, the Vedas, and the hieroglyphs of Egypt. It taught as articles of faith the existence of a Supreme Being, invisible, inaccessible, and incomprehensible, who is the creator of a spiritual world consisting of divine intelligences called aeons, emanating from him, and of matter which was eternal, the source of evil and the antagonist of the Supreme Being. One of these aeons, the lowest of all, called the Demiurge, created the world out of matter, which, though eternal, was inert and formless. The Supreme Father, or first principle of all things, had dwelt from all eternity in a pleroma, or fullness of inaccessible light, and hence he was called bythos, or the abyss, meaning the deep nature of his perfections was beyond measure. This being, says Dr. Burton in his explanation of the Gnostic system in the Bamptum lectures, by an operation purely mental, or by acting upon himself, produced two other beings of different sexes, from whom by a series of descents, more or less numerous according to different schemes, several pairs of beings were formed, who were called aeons, from the periods of their existence before time was, or emanations from, the mode of their production. These successive aeons, or emanations, appear to have been inferior each to the preceding, and their existence was indispensable to the Gnostic scheme, that they might account for the creation of the world without making God the author of evil. These aeons lived through countless ages with their first father, but the system of emanations seems to have resembled that of concentric circles, and they gradually deteriorated as they approached nearer and nearer to the extremity of the Pleroma. Beyond this Pleroma was matter, inert and powerless, though co-eternal with the Supreme God, and like him, without beginning. At length, one of the aeons, the Demiurge, passed the limits of the Pleroma, and meeting with matter, created the world after the form and model of an ideal world, which existed in the Pleroma, or the mind, of the Supreme God. We need not enter into a minute study of the other points of the doctrine which grew out of these three. Sufficient is it to say that the old Gnosticism was not an original system, but was really a religion and a philosophy made up of portions of the older Grecian and Oriental systems, including the Platonism of the Greeks, the Parseism of the Persians, and the Kabbalah of the Jews. The coming of Christianity found this old Gnosticism spread in Asia and in Egypt. Some of its disciples became converts to the new religion. They brought with them into its fold many of the mystical views of their Gnostic philosophy and sought to apply them to the pure and simple doctrines of the Gospel. Thus it happened that the name of Gnosticism was applied to a great variety of schools, differing from each other in the way they explained the Christian faith. Yet having one common principle of unity, they placed themselves somewhat in opposition to the understanding of Christianity as it was generally received by the disciples they deemed the common view of Christianity insufficient to afford any absolute truth. Therefore, they claimed for themselves the possession of an amount of knowledge higher than that of ordinary believers. They seldom pretended, says the Dr. Rev. Wing, to demonstrate the principles on which their systems were founded by historical evidence or logical reasonings, since they rather boasted that these were discovered by the intuitional powers of more highly endowed minds, and that the materials thus obtained, whether through faith or divine revelation, were then worked up into a scientific form according to each one's natural power and culture. Their aim was to construct not merely a theory of redemption, but of the universe, a cosmogony. No subject was beyond their investigations. Whatever God could reveal to the finite intellect, they looked upon as within their range. What to others seemed only speculative ideas were by them hypostatized or personified into real beings or historical facts. It was in this way that they constructed systems of speculation on subjects entirely beyond the range of human knowledge, which startle us by their boldness and their apparent consciousness of reality. Such was the Gnosticism whose various sects intruded with their mystical notions and their allegorical ideas into the Church, before Christianity had been well established. Although named and denounced by St. Paul as vain babblers, they gained in strength and gave rise to many heresies lasting until the 4th century. The most important of these sects, and the one from which the moderns have got most of their views of Christian Gnosticism, was established in the 2nd century by Basilides, the chief of the Egyptian Gnostics. The doctrine of the Basilideans grew from the original Gnostic system. It was more particularly distinguished by the adoption from Pythagoras of the doctrine of numbers and its use of the word Abraxas, that which, according to the Leland manuscript, so greatly puzzled the learned Mr. Locke. The system of Basilides held that the supreme god was beyond understanding and ineffable. Unfolded from his perfection were seven attributes, personal qualities, or rather personified powers, namely, mind, reason, thought, wisdom, power, holiness, and peace. Seven was a sacred number, and these seven powers referred to the seven days of the week. Basilides also supposed that there were seven similar beings in every stage or region of the spiritual world. These regions were 365 in number, corresponding to the days in the solar year. These 365 regions were so many spiritual mansions between the earth and heaven, and he supposed the existence of an equal number of angels. The number 365 was holy in the Basilidian system. He worked out the word Abraxas because these letters in Greek have the numerical b- value when added together of 365. The German theologian Bellermann thinks he has found the meaning in the Kaptu or Old Egyptian language where the words Abra, word, and Saj blessed, holy, or adorable, and therefore Abra easily, made into the Greek word Abraxas meant the holy, blessed, or adorable word, thus coming close to the spirit of the Jewish Kabbalist in their similar use of a holy name. Whether the word was thus invented by Basilides on account of the numerical value of its letters is uncertain. He, however, applied it in his system as the name of the supreme God. This word Abraxas, like the Tetragrammaton of the Jews, became of great importance to the Basilideans. Their reverence for it gave origin to what are called Abraxas gems. These are gems, plates, or tablets of metal, discovered principally in Egypt, but also found in France and Spain. They are inscribed with the word Abraxas, and an image supposed to refer to the Basilidian god. Some of these have on them Jewish words, such as Jehovah or Adonai, and others have Persian, Egyptian, or Grecian symbols. Montfaucon, who has treated the subject of Abraxas gems at length, divides them into seven classes those inscribed with the head of a cock as a symbol of the sun, those having the head of a lion to denote the heat of the sun and the word Mithras, those having the image of the Egyptian god Serapis, those showing sphinxes, apes, and other animals, those having human figures with the words Io, Sabbath, Adonai, etc., those having inscriptions without figures, and those having forms of monsters. From these gems, we take our knowledge of the Gnostic or Basilidian symbols, which are said to have furnished ideas to the builders of the Middle Ages in their decorative art, and which Mr. King and some other writers have assumed to be handed on to the Freemasons. The leading Gnostic symbol is that the supreme god, Abraxas. This is represented as a human figure with the head of a rooster, the legs being two serpents, he has a sword in one hand, sometimes a whip, and a shield in the other. The serpent is also a very common symbol, having sometimes the head of a rooster, or a lion, or of a hawk. Other symbols known to be of purely Gnostic or Basilidian origin, from the inscription Abraxas or Io or both, are Horus or the sun seated on a lotus flower, supported by a double lamp, composed of two phallic images joined at their bases. The dog, the raven, the Tau cross having over it a human head. The Egyptian god Anubis and father Nilus, stooping and holding in his hand the double phallic lamp of Horus. This last symbol is curious because the word halos, like Mithras, which is also a Gnostic symbol, and Abraxas, expresses in the value of the Greek letters the number 365. All these symbols, it will be seen, make some reference to the sun, either as the representative of the supreme god or as the source of light. They lead to the belief that in the latter, Gnosticism as in the Mithraic Mysteries, there was sun worship, one of the earliest and most extensive of the primitive religions. Evidently in both Gnostic and Mithraic symbolism, the sun plays a very important part. Architects and builders of the Middle Ages may have borrowed, and probably did borrow, some suggestions from the Gnostics in carrying out the symbolism of their art. But it is not probable from their church organization and their religious character that there would be more than mere suggestions. Certainly they were not accepted by these Orthodox Christians with anything of their real Gnostic meaning. We may apply to the use of Gnostic symbols by the architects of the Middle Ages the remarks made by Frederick Apthorpe Paley on the adoption of certain pagan symbols by the same builders. Their Gnostic origin was a mere accident. They were employed not as the symbolism of any Gnostic doctrine, but in the spirit of Christianity, and the Church, in perfecting their development, stamped them with a purer and sublimer character. Comparing these Gnostic symbols with those of ours, we are led to reject the opinion of Hutchinson that the Basilidian system of religion furnished Freemasonry with some tenets, principles, and hieroglyphics. As Freemasons, we refuse the tenets and principles of the sect condemned by Clement and by Irenaeus. As to its hieroglyphics, meaning its symbols, we look in vain for anything like them in speculative Freemasonry. That the Freemasons at a very early period tended to the doctrine of sacred numbers, which has been largely developed in the Freemasonry of the modern high degrees, is true. But this symbolism came directly from the teachings of Pythagoras, with which the compilers of the primitive rituals were familiar. That the sun and the moon are briefly referred to in rituals and may be deemed in some sort Masonic symbols is also true. But the use made of this symbolism and the meaning of it very clearly proves that it has not been taken from a Gnostic source. The doctrine of the metempsychosis, transfer of the soul from one body to another, taught by the Basilidians, is another point widely separating Freemasonry from Gnosticism, the dogma of the resurrection being almost the foundation stone on which the whole religious philosophy of the former is built. G.W. King seeks to connect Freemasonry and Gnosticism through a line of argument which only goes to prove his absolute and perhaps his pardonable misuse of Masonic history. Only careful research, quickened by active Masonic membership, enables a student to avoid the errors into which King falls. The foregoing considerations, he says, seem to afford a rational explanation of the manner in which the genuine Gnostic symbols, whether still retaining any mystic meaning or kept as mere lifeless forms, let the Order declare, have come down to these times still paraded as things holy and of deep significance treasured up among the dark sectaries of the Lebanon and the Sophies of Persia, communicated to the Templars and transmitted to their heirs, the Brethren of the Rosy Cross, they have kept up an unbroken existence. The line of history King pursues presents a mere jumble of unrelated ideas. He mixes up the old Rosicrucians with the more modern Rose Croix, while the only relation is found in the similarity of name. If he meant the former, he fails to show a relationship between them and the Freemasons. If the latter, he did not know that there is not a Gnostic symbol in their system, which is wholly made from the Church symbolism. Finally, he says, those thus symbols in their origin embodying the highest mysteries of Indian theosophy, afterward eagerly embraced by the subtle genius of the Alexandrian Greeks, and combined by them with the hidden wisdom of Egypt, in whose captivating and profound doctrines the few bright spirits of the Middle Ages sought a refuge from the childish fables then constituting orthodoxy, engendered by monkery upon the primal Buddhistic stock, these sacred symbols exist even now, but serve merely for the insignia of what at best is but a charitable, probably nothing more in its present form than a convivial institution. These last lines indicate the precise amount of knowledge that he had of the purpose and plan of Freemasonry, We regret that he has not tried to tell us of how it was that what at best is but a charitable and probably nothing more than a convivial institution has had the use of the symbols of a profound theosophy. Benevolent societies and convivial clubs do not, as a rule, meddle with such matters. But that problem belongs to him and his followers. Freemasons need not undertake the needless labor of searching for that which we are sure cannot be found. That was a little bit of a rough one to get through, but...